This is Growing Pulse Crops, and I'm your host, Tim Hamrich. Today on episode 13 of season three. We put a two-third rate, so 120 pounds of yellow peas, with a half rate, two and a half pounds, of clearfield canola. I didn't quite know what to expect. I was kind of thinking I was going to still see the same root rot that we had seen, you know, five or ten years before. But that didn't happen. Greg Bush returns to the show to talk about his experiences with intercropping. You just heard Greg on our last episode talking about his soil health journey, which included adding pulses and other crops to diversify his rotations. In case you did miss that one, Greg's a farmer up in the far northwest corner of North Dakota. He farms with his wife, Jessica, and they've been growing pulses as part of their rotation for over 30 years now. In today's episode, we talk about what led Greg to trying intercropping which combinations of intercrops have worked for him, the benefits and challenges of this approach, and his advice for others who might want to experiment with intercropping. Before we dive in, just a quick note that this interview actually took place in January, so any references to the weather are going to be relative to that time, and obviously the weather has changed. But I'll drop you into the conversation here with Greg, starting with him recalling what got him first interested in intercropping. So the first year we we grew an intercrop, the idea had been around for a while and we had seen some of our Canadian neighbors were trying this. So I chose a field that was one of our worst for, for having issues with pea root rot. We put uh, a two-third rate, so 120 pounds of yellow peas, with a half rate, two and a half pounds, of clearfield canola. And we chose the clearfield variety mainly for the reason that we would have a common broadleaf herbicide that we could use in the case of any broadleaf weed escapes. As it turned out, we just needed a grass herbicide. But I didn't quite know what to expect. I was kind of thinking I was going to still see the same root rot that we had seen, you know, five or 10 years before. But that didn't happen. It just seemed like the two grew together and uh, they form a, a really good uh, synergy in the areas that are a little more saline prone, where peas do very poorly. The canola was thicker. In the areas on hilltops where the canola tends to run out of uh, moisture, the peas did better. The combination far exceeded what we, we would have gotten with peas alone. Part of the problem was that the uh, yellow peas matured way too quickly, and uh, the canola had to be desiccated. And when we harvested them together, the peas were shattering. We probably lost seven or eight bushels an acre. So the second year, we found a later variety of peas, a maple pea, and they have some older characteristics. They're full season. They're a long vined, purple flowered, more of a forage pea, but they fit nicely into specialty markets. And that got us a little bit closer to even maturity with the canola. That year, we still had to desiccate, but um, we did quite well with that one. Now, since the last two years, we've been growing the maple peas, a longer season pea variety, with yellow mustard, which is shorter than probably any of the canola varieties that are out there today. We lost the potential to use raptor herbicide for broadleaf control, but we still have our grass control out there. And we're finding that the maturities match quite nicely. And uh, the mustard doesn't tend to yield what the canola did, but the markets are typically double the value of what canola markets are. Okay. 
and then so you kind of evening out this maturity so that you can kind of harvest them at the same time. But then what do you do? You've got this mixed grain. What do you do then? So that is an additional cost. So we have uh, a neighbor with a portable sieve mill and they'll either come to my farm or I'll haul loads over to their farm. And we have to have this cleaned and separated before we can market it. Maybe someday we'll have markets that will take the combined grains together. They store very nicely together. The first year we were concerned, if the peas are 13 and a half moisture, won't that mean that the canola is 13 and a half moisture? And canola does not store at much over 9 or 10%. So we were quite concerned that we were going to have moldy canola when we opened the bin door, but that just wasn't the case. In fact, we let that combination sit in the bin for a year and a half till we got around to cleaning it. And trust me, I was checking it because <laughs> I was concerned. I didn't want to burn up a bin of combined grain. But when we cleaned it a year and a half later, it came out just as nice as when we put it in. So it's amazing that they do store that way. Again, they're they're seated together. We don't separate the rows. We put it down with a single shoot drill. We set the depth at about three quarters of an inch. Now that might be a little bit shallow for the peas and it might be a little bit deep for the canola or mustard, but they just seem to help each other out of the ground. And with our no-till system, typically we can get away with planting the peas at three quarters of an inch and still have moisture there to get everything established. Very interesting. And Going back to kind of the beginning, you, you mentioned your Canadian neighbors were already experimenting with this. What was it about this idea that appealed to you at that time? It was uh, the cost-cutting aspects. And I guess, to be honest, it was um, just to get more diversity on the land, to feed the uh, the soil you know, microbes and the different soil life that's out there. And um, just try to make our ground healthier. And talk more about the cost-cutting aspect. What do you mean by that? So if you grow canola by itself, you can probably expect uh, in a given year to, to put $70 worth of fertility on that ground. Maybe, you know, $50 to $80. This year, it's going to be a lot more than that. And um, we use zero fertilizer when we combine them. Granted, we're not going to grow as much canola. But when we add the peas in, we typically are going to be above what either crop can do alone when it comes to total pounds. That doesn't always happen, but for the most part, under a, a normal circumstance, that's what we've been seeing. When it comes to chemical, you have these two crops competing with each other and shading out most of the other weeds that are out there. And we're seeing a reduction in, in weeds and a reduction in the need for additional chemical. What about like with pests and diseases? You, you mentioned the shading out of other weeds, but, you know, are you running into any difference in terms of management of e either insect pests or any disease difference? That's a really good point. Flea beetles are a huge problem in canola and mustard, and we can still get flea beetles, but if it's canola or mustard by itself and flea beetles move in from the edge and cut that crop out for 50 yards into the field, you've got nothing but dirt, which opens it up to weeds. If you've got a companion crop, the peas take over. They thicken up 
Granted, it's only two-thirds of a rate, but they really seem to thicken up nicely and fill in the empty spots. With root disease, it just seems like if there is an issue with root disease, then you're going to have a higher proportion of canola or mustard in that companion. And it sounds like, you know, canola or mustard with the yellow peas has worked the best. Have there been any mixes or intercrops uh, that you've tried that maybe hasn't worked so well? We have tried flax and chickpeas. Now, the first year, again, it was small acreage, and I thought it was probably the greater of the two successes. Just a fabulous crop of uh, chickpeas, and of course, the flax filled in nicely. Zero ascochyta. And that's that's typical with uh, a, a real huge problem with with chickpeas. Sometimes uh, the fellows that grow chickpeas by themselves will put three, four, five fungicide applications out there, and um, we just didn't see that. They harvested nice together. I didn't like that we had to cut them right down on the ground or you know close to the ground, and it was a lot of residue to chop up. So the second year, we uh, we probably increased our acres uh, sevenfold. That year was 2019. We had kind of a hot, dry start to the summer, but the crop was looking good and was filling in nicely. And then when harvest came, we had uh, all of August and most of September were just rain shower after rain shower. And the chickpeas just shattered and molded. And we did end up going in with a stripper head and salvaging the flax that we could. And um, we haven't gone back to that mix. We probably will eventually. Part of the issue is uh, we're in a severe drought right now. And there is no crop insurance on these companion crops, these intercrops. And um I guess I'm just trying to reduce risk. I'm going to stick with the maple pea mustard because I feel very comfortable with that one. I don't feel like I've ever lost out on that combination. But the uh, flax and chickpeas, also the flax and lentils that I've tried, um, I haven't had as good luck with that. Okay. I mean, that's really good information and good to know. And the insurance thing seems really key. So how do you sort of calculate that risk as you're thinking about that? Should I intercrop this even though I can't get it insured? Well, part of that is that we are keeping our costs uh, relatively low. And uh, we kind of consider that we're maybe self-insuring against a disaster. Now, hail, and we have had hail. In August of 2020, we had a pretty tough hailstorm went through. But I still felt that we finished on the plus side. Uh, we didn't get near what we would have before the storm. And we could have taken hail insurance. It is quite expensive, but uh, we chose not to. But yeah, it would be nice to have multi-peril insurance on that. We have had uh, representatives from risk management out looking at fields, and they're taking it under consideration. After three years, there is a written agreement that could be made with crop insurance, but thus far it's been quite expensive with a low guarantee. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Any other equipment changes or, or modifications to how you approach, you know, farming these acres that are intercropped? You know, we could consider going to a double shoot system where we would be putting 
the shallow seeded crop like mustard in one row and the deeper crop like peas in the other. But um, I think at this point, we've been pretty satisfied with the emergence that we get. We have switched from using a draper head exclusively on these to using a shellborn stripper head where we can. It doesn't work every year. This past year, we were able to start on that intercrop with a stripper head. When we got into some green fields, we switched over and we started cutting straight mustard. And it, it took us a couple days to get that finished. And we had had some hot, windy days. And when we got back to the intercrop, we were shattering too much. So we finished with the draper head. Very interesting. And could you kind of walk us through some kind of you know, theoretical economics here as as you're kind of running the numbers in your head, because it sounds like your inputs per acre are going to go lower. Yield or revenue per acre maybe would go lower too. I'm not quite sure. Can you maybe walk us through the theoretical economics, not asking you to open your books to us or anything, but just kind of how that thought process looks? Yeah. So, you know, I have done a comparison on that. And uh, just this past year, I guess, was was a good example. We were fairly hot and dry, so the mustard wasn't as good as what we had hoped. We ended up with about a 770-pound mustard crop, a good price, 37 cents a pound. The uh, gross on that was about $285 an acre. But the um, companion crop with uh, about 19 bushel to the acre of maple pea, and about 320 pounds of mustard, those two together ended up about $110 an acre higher. The expenses were probably about uh, 5 to $10 an acre lower. The biggest cost, well, other than seed, the largest cost is separation. At $0.75 cents a bushel, we were in that close to $20 an acre. Other than that, our out-of-pocket costs probably would be uh, $30 an acre less. And are you still doing any kind of monocrop of the maple peas, or is pretty much any time you go in with a pulse crop, it's, it's intercrop now? We pick and choose our fields. This year, we are going, going to be growing some yellow peas by themselves. We typically won't grow the maple peas by themselves because they tend to lodge down flat. They grow about four feet tall and just before harvest they just flatten right out to the ground and it's a lot to put through the combine and uh, you hate to pick a rock when you're doing that. By growing them with the, um, the mustard we can actually cut and leave about eight inches of stubble or if we strip we're leaving it all, almost all. And uh, that gives us the ability to catch snow. It uh, speeds up harvest. But any time that we have done a test strip of peas by themselves, and it's typically been yellows, and we've typically chosen fields that have, have a history of root rot on them, it's been a great big failure. Definitely poorer than the peas with a uh, oilseed companion. Well, this is. Fantastic. What else should we make sure we mention anyone who might be considering trying an intercrop? You know, what would your advice be to them or what, what else should we make sure we talk about? Well, start small. Think of what your goals are. Uh, the ratios that you use for the seed that you put down, you can kind of pick a winner. 
these past couple of years with mustard prices being stronger than pea prices, we have increased the uh, ratio of mustard seed versus pea seed. Now, if mustard starts to drop back and the peas are stronger, we'll go the other way around. But yeah, I, I would say start small, keep tweaking your system. It took me four years to really figure out where I wanted to be with this, you know, and don't be afraid to try things. And if you get a few weeds in there, that's not the end of the world. If you need to get in and control them with a uh, brush mower, that might be what you have to do sometimes. Our broadleaf weed control is limited. I guess that would be my advice. And I, I think you said earlier, but just to make sure I, I get it, how many pounds per acre are you doing with with the peas and either canola or mustard? And then also I'm curious on the chickpea flax, uh, what you did there too. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Good question. So the first year when we went canola and yellow peas, we were at 120 pounds of yellow pea seed and two and a half pounds of canola seed. So then when we evolved into the maple peas and canola, we did some strip trials. We did 120 pounds, 110 pounds, and 100 pounds, different strips with the two and a half pounds of canola. And what we found is 120 was way too much. It was too heavy, and it tipped the canola over and lodged it flat to the ground like growing maple peas by themselves would do anyways. We've since tweaked that to go to 90 pounds of maple pea seed. We would probably stick, if we were doing yellow peas and mustard, we would probably stick with 120 pounds. That seems to suit them pretty well because their genetics are to stand up anyways. As far as the mustard, we the first year did a half rate of five pounds because a, a full seeding rate of mustard is about 10. And then this last year with uh, a strong yellow mustard contract, we upped that to six pounds. And on the um, chickpea flax, we had done 150 pounds of chickpeas with 12 pounds of, of flax. And we found that was a little too much chickpea. They were a large kabuli leader was the variety. That was too much chickpea and too little flax. And the second year, we backed that off to 120 pounds with 15 pounds of flax. If we continue, we'll probably do some strip trials to uh, try some different rates on that. All right. What a wealth of knowledge and experience. Thank you so much to Greg Bush for being on the show. It's rare that we can get two great episodes like this out of one single interview, but I think Greg's story is special. So I really appreciated this conversation. I hope you found value in both of these episodes as well. Well, make sure you're a subscriber to the Growing Pulse Crops podcast so you don't miss our next episode about aphids with entomologist Dr. Tyler Wist. If you're not careful with aphids, at the flowering stage of your fava bean plant, you can lose your whole crop. And I had a few uh, farmers on Twitter after I was posting pictures of the yields and the, the terrible heat maps that we would get off of the combine. And uh, some of the farmers said, you know what, I had aphids in my field and I really had a terrible, terrible crop year with my fava bean. Do you think it was the aphids doing that? Like, yeah, it likely was. Again, be sure to subscribe to this show on your podcast platform of choice so that you can catch that upcoming episode as well. 
The Growing Pulse Crops podcast series is overseen by the Pulse Crops Working Group with funding from the North Central IPM Center, USDA NIFA, the USA Dry Pea and Lentil Council, and the North Central Extension Risk Management Education Program. We're releasing these episodes two times per month throughout the growing season, and we want to make sure that the information stays relevant to you. So if you're finding this useful, we'd love it if you would go ahead and leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And feel free to tweet us anytime by using the hashtag GrowingPulseCrops. We'll be back with another great episode in a couple weeks. 